Hello, my name is Jan Brink and we are podcasting on the brink from the capital of Northern BC, Prince George. It's a special podcast in a way because it's number 97. And, uh, you know, the, uh, a very beautiful day, as you can see in the background, Prince George. It's a beautiful sunny day, a little bit brisk, but it's a beautiful, beautiful sunny day and Prince George. And for our international viewers, again, if you're planning a holiday this summer, and now is the time to go on holidays, the planes are flying again, and all those other things, plan British Columbia, and in particular, northern British Columbia, Prince George and the north. An amazing place, and you must come and see it. I have a special guest today, and his name is Jim van der Ploeg. And, And Jim... Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate being here. Yeah, and, and uh, we know each other a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. We met, uh, you know, pre-COVID once. Uh, yes. You know, we just bumped into each other. Uh, you just said hello to me and uh, talked a little bit about the local things that we are doing. And uh, But uh, you've been here for quite a while already, right? Uh, this is my 32nd year in Prince George. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you were born... Elsewhere? I was born in Burnaby, so I've always been a BC boy. Yeah. Uh, my parents came over from Holland, and uh, my brother and sister were born in Vancouver as myself. I was born in Burnaby. Okay. And uh, moved Where up here. Where were your parents born in Holland? They were in out of Friesland. Both were out of Friesland. Uh, St. Anaprochi, Berlicum area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was born in Groningen. You know, okay, So yes. if you look at Holland, this for our guest. Uh, you know, then uh, looking from my side here, then uh, Holland relatively smart, small, about 19, 20 million people in that area. A lot of people on a small piece of property. And then in the extreme northeast is Groningen, right next to it is Friesland. Mm-hmm. And then Amsterdam is here, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. <coughs> so your parents came here when? It was the mid '50s. My dad came over to, you know, make it a home. It, it post-war, was, right? It was post-war, and uh, you know, it was hard to find a job back in the Netherlands back then. And you know, Canada, him and his brother, uh, it was a land of opportunity. So yeah. they made the move. And the way I understand the story, because he applied everywhere, the day he was getting ready to leave, like the next day, he was going to get on the boat and, and come over. Uh, he was offered a job by the Rotterdam Police Department, but it was too late. He had already made the commitment to go to Canada. Yeah. So, yeah, he came to Canada. He worked in mills. He worked all through the lower mainland area, worked in, I think, in Ocean Falls for a while at a mill. He was a, a skilled craftsman. He was fantastic with a hammer and a piece of wood. Yeah. Yeah. Not uncommon for people that came out of Holland. A lot of people came out of Holland in the post-war years. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of aunts and uncles that emigrated to Canada and then ended up in the States someplace. But it was very common at that point that, uh, you know, after the war, and the war was over in 1945, but it took a long time for things to settle down again. And it was a wave of people with Dutch mm-hmm. heritage that decided to leave, not so much for themselves, but for they were uncertain about the future. And mm-hmm. in Europe, Western Europe in particular, because the fear was then that as the Russians came in and pushed the Germans out of Eastern Germany and through Berlin 
and then the Canadians and Americans came the other direction. Uh, you know, there was a fear that the Russians would take over most of Europe, and they did, Central Europe in particular, mm -hmm. and, and obviously, and at the same time, potentially that would take in Holland and, and Belgium and those countries yeah. as well. And so there was a fear of that, and that's why a lot of people left Holland. And, uh, you know, then, uh, uh, and then uh, there is a very close relationship because we, your parents and myself, I was born in 1940, mm -hmm. remember the liberation of Holland and uh, my hometown. Just have a drink here. I remember the time from uh, the liberation, April the 12th, 1945 by the Canadians made such an impression on me mm -hmm. that I always knew from there and then I would go to Canada. Not if, but when. The land of my heroes. Yeah. That's where I wanted to go. Yeah. And, uh, but but I, I left, the, the initial wave was of the people between 1945 and 1955-ish yeah. <coughs> was the initial wave. And then I left in 1965 when it slowed down already somewhat and, uh, and then the people that then left or emigrated to Canada in particular were of the following generation more or less, yeah. you know, like uh, with myself and, uh, and I ended up in, uh, in British Columbia as well, mm -hmm. you know. So, so he, uh, your family then, uh, uh, and you have siblings. Uh, yep. Yeah, I have an older brother, older sister. That we've kind of spread all over. My sister is in Toronto. Okay. And uh, married with four fantastic kids, and all they all have families. I've got great nephews, nieces. And then I have a brother down in California, right in the Ontario, Los Angeles area. Oh, my, my goodness. And uh, well, at the time, there, when my parents came over, quite a bit of their family went down to California. Yeah. And so. Uh, at one point, and I can't remember, I was very young. Like I yeah, was, yeah. I don't even know if I was in elementary school yet. You know, we moved down to California for a very short period of time. Yeah. Uh, my mom didn't really enjoy it very much. So we ended up coming back to BC. It was, yeah, I yeah. think, too hot for her, too yeah. busy. And uh, so my, uh, my brother actually was at an age where I think he was in high school already at the time, or maybe yeah. late elementary school, just had a real enjoyment of California and so when he had the opportunity he moved down he, he went back yeah yeah so but you know Friesland where your parents were born and where they lived up to the time that they left uh, uh, you know in in 1955 or whenever it was the uh, mm -hmm. the the climate is very similar to the Vancouver or lower yeah. mainland climate so that's where I can see uh, Somebody that was born there, they're used to the seasons, yeah. and uh, and they would like that. Yeah, and there was a whole circle of friends. My mom still is in contact with people that she grew up with. Yeah, you know, and she's in her you know ninety four. Wow, and still is in contact with people that that were from the hometown. Yeah, yeah, and that are now in 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 BC. Yeah, uh, some are in BC. Uh, some in Washington State, and yeah. then some is still in Holland. So it's becoming a smaller group, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the numbers become smaller yeah. and smaller. Yeah. I still do that too. I still have friends in Holland, and still some family. 
I'm not too involved in the Dutch community here. Mm -hmm. They did that more from that particular group, either through churches or yeah. whatever they had, and I'm kind of ag agnostic. So, and my wife is Canadian, but uh, I always looked at myself as a Canadian, right from the time I was five years old. There was yeah. no question about it. I was going to go to Canada. I'm a yeah. Canadian. That's where I want to be. Yeah. You know. So, so you get your education there, and and then what did you do then? You know, I went straight into working. Uh, I worked a lot of retail jobs and uh, always enjoyed it. I yeah. always enjoyed, you know, the... the working with the public? Or? Working with the public was always what I enjoyed doing. Yeah. And I always enjoyed, you know, the, you know, you know, you know, selling something. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it, it was always something I really enjoyed. There was always something, though, that I, I always felt motivated. I just liked helping people. Yeah. You know, like, you know, the kind of the sales approach that if you just help people, the numbers will work out for themselves, right? Exactly. You know, exactly. if you have a good product, if, you know, you're honest with yeah. people, yeah. good things happen, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, they got to the point where I actually wanted to make a difference. And I was working still retail. And I had a, a mutual friend that I ran into at CNC. I was taking some accounting classes. And I was, you know, my late 30s. And... Uh, he, well, he was talking to me because I was, you know, at one of those points where it's like, you know, I, I need to be doing a little bit more. Like, I need to be doing something different. And he was listening. He said, well, what motivates you? And I says, well, you know, I want to help people and I want to make a difference. Yeah. And he goes, well, you need to do what I'm doing. And at the time, I thought he was actually studying to become a pastor of a church. And I went, right. well, I can't be doing that. No. And he goes, no, I'm a paramedic. And I went, Wow. I said, you know, when I was a kid, I was motivated by this TV show called Emergency in the mid-70s. Yeah, yeah. I said, yeah, that was something I always wanted to do. I just yeah. kind of wrote it off that, you know, I wouldn't be good enough or whatever. Whatever, yeah. And uh, so he actually invited me to come along that night. He was working that night, and I rode third uh, with him with uh, another individual who I still work with today, Mark Rivard, who is a fantastic guy. And uh, it was a night that kind of changed my life. All of a sudden, I went, boom. Yeah, I said, I can do this. Yeah. And went and got my level three ticket. I had no first aid background. I got my no. level three ticket. But it's uh, a, for the guests that are watching. Yeah. yeah. So now, and just want to explain what you are. You are, among other things, but, but uh, you know, a paramedic. Yes. And a paramedic is uh, part of the medical service of government that has ambulances and operate throughout British Columbia in all the regions and manning actually the medical uh, cars and, and vehicles yeah. to go to areas where they are required. So tell, tell us yeah. a little bit more. Well, BC is, I think, a really unique and I think is very a lucky province because we do have a provincial service. We're not bound by boundaries. So wherever you are in the province, we are going to get to you. Yeah. Whether it be by helicopter, by ambulance, yeah. using a search and rescue team, we're going to find you. Yeah. We're going to get to you. So it's on a regular basis, like a Prince George ambulance, our Prince George will be covered with a crew from Vanderhoof or Bear Lake or Cornell right. uh, because we can basically move without borders, as long as there's coverage in those communities. Now, when I came here in 1965, mm -hmm. it was not 
I, public. It was independent yes. because you had all kinds of cars running around, yeah. Cadillacs and all kinds of cars yeah. that were the ambulances. I believe it was 1974 where it became a provincial service. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And so we're coming close to our, you know, our anniversary here. Next year is going to be a big anniversary for us. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it became, you know, the white vehicle with the red stripe that has been since 1974. That hasn't changed. No. The uniforms changed from a white shirt with a tie to just a white shirt to now the blue shirts. Yeah. Uh, the license levels have changed over a period of time. And myself, I'm a primary care paramedic. So it, what does that mean? It's, it's, it used to be called basic life support, so BLS paramedic, a basic life support. We also have in our province, we have uh, advanced care paramedics, which is ALS. They have a lot more medical interventions that they can do, especially in the, for cardiac patients, for people that are having respiratory issues. We also then, in Prince George too, we're very fortunate to have critical care paramedics, which are the people that generally work on the plane. Uh, and you have on to the planes? Yeah, so we have a plane and a helicopter based here in Prince George. We have numerous ones throughout the province. And you have to kind of think of that plane as an intensive care in the air. Yeah. So for the, you know, the very sick people, They'd have to move either to specialty treatment. Either because of an accident or otherwise. Just medical conditions, yeah. Medical conditions that yeah. need a step up, right? Yeah. So in these small communities, like, you know, health concerns don't have boundaries either. No. So a small community, somebody could be very sick and need to be at a center like Prince George or maybe even Vancouver, Kelowna. Yeah. And uh, our critical care paramedics can get there and basically give the same type of care as an intensive care would, would give and, yeah. and get them to the next level. Yeah. And we also have another license level called Infant Transport Team, ITT. Yeah. And their specialty, they're based out of Children's Hospital and their specialty is pediatrics. Yeah. And what is pediatrics? Basically 18, 18 years and younger. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and you know they're, they have the incubators. They have you know the babies that are premature, or the you know the 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 you know the very sick kids that need uh, again another higher level of care. And I have such respect for for those individuals because yeah. the bulk of their patients can't talk. Yeah, you know the size of them, the medications is so critical. S so critical. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I have a great deal of respect for all of my colleagues. Yes. So, it is, <clears throat> I was born during the war years, mm -hmm. right, and we saw, as a five-year-old, saw far too much that we should not have seen, and yeah. then all the stress and all the problems, you're well aware of uh, the war yeah. years, and my mom had three kids, my dad was uh, part of the uh, Dutch army, mm -hmm. and they didn't know, for five, he was part uh, of when the Rotterdam got bombed wow. they didn't know he was dead or alive for five years so she had to wow. kind of struggle through the voyage and, and what I'm getting to is that I was affected by PTSD mm -hmm. and and <clears throat> you know and and uh, and and that's very much also a reality with those that serve the people and put uh, either police or related services like paramedics or mm -hmm. ambulance services that you you get exposed to some very 
trying situations and, 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 and mental health and stability is very much part of the profession. Oh, very much so. Um, <clears throat> I personally was off for, for 10 months uh, with a diagnosis of PTSD. Yeah. And uh, at the time, it really, not only what I was going through because of the calls that I had attended, it was also I was almost like a guilt factor because it was like I signed up to be a paramedic. You know, this is what my job was. That The fact that I let the job get to me really bothered me. Uh, you know, I had a, a series of, you know, a string of really bad calls in a very short period of time. I was overworking. I was, I was working a lot. I was exhausted. More time. And that yeah. is, again, a reflection of not enough people in, in the profession and then having to do too much OT or overtime. Yep. <clears throat> and, yeah. <clears throat> and how does it manifest itself then, like in a situation like you, but that's common in different forms with a lot of other people for the same reason. I just well, want people to understand that well, a little bit better. There was an old school mentality, whereas in order to forget the bad call, give me another call. Yeah. If I just keep going, I won't have to think about the old call. Yeah. And our culture has changed. I, uh, when I got back to work, I made, kind of made a personal vow that I was going to be better for my patients, but I was also going to be better for my colleagues. Right. And I joined what we have now called uh, a critical incident support team, a peer team. Yeah. And we're uh, basically activated for a number of different reasons. Sometimes it's just dispatch will activate us because it's a bad call. And we'll reach out to our colleagues throughout the province. It's generally, we try to be anonymous. Yeah. So they don't know who we are. Yeah. And we just check in. We yeah. Just to make sure that they're doing okay, that yeah. what they're feeling is normal. And if they need extra support, we have an incredible team of clinicians that we have access to now. Yeah. That uh, Provincially? Pr provincially. Or, yeah. And again, because of COVID, it, you know, it used to be a lot of face-to-face, -face, yeah. but we're finding that Zoom and, you know, Skype and all these different Plus platforms. technology, we, right, has, has and helped yeah. to make it uh, work more effective and yeah. efficient, right? Yeah, so it, there was no stop in care. So, you know, I'm very proud of the work that, you know, my peers do. There's, I think, 150 of us now in the province that are... We get a little bit of additional training. We're not counselors, but we're yeah. just colleagues, just like the people we're contacting. Yeah. And we just check in and make sure that they're doing okay. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times they, they are, they're doing fine. They appreciate the check-in, but sometimes they just need a little extra. Sometimes it's just talking for a while. Yeah. Sometimes it is going it's, to it's, a professional. It's a recognition Overdue in a way, but not only to paramedics, but also uh, I, I had uh, did some podcasting with some people from uh, the RCMP. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it not unsimilar in a lot of cases. Uh, you know that I believe that public at large mm -hmm. has become more sensitive to uh, you know the occasions of uh, PTSD in particular, and and then. The other part that has been a portion of it likely is, uh, you know, and not over belaboring this, but uh, there's a shortages of paramedics. And then part of that was uh, 
they've been in uh, negotiations on contracts which mm -hmm. fortunately uh, are settled now without going into the details yeah. but likely what will happen is it will attract more people into the profession and mm -hmm. in particular where you're dealing with situations a I, I, can, I cannot imagine what it would be other than I was trained special forces in the okay. Air Force in Holland uh, and I was drafted for two years so we then got exposure to things that happen mm -hmm. more so than the average individual would see. But but <clears throat> but would happen is that uh, you never quite know what the next phone call will bring, and then uh, how ready are you for it, and 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 what the situation. So it's always a form of stress that will happen. I presume. Oh, oh for sure. You have to trade your mind. To like, I, I read this book, it was called The 60 Second Medic. And the basic premise is if you go into every call thinking it's the worst thing you're ever going to see, you get that adrenaline level at the right level to, 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 you know, to respond appropriately, you know, to be able to keep your emotions in check, be calm. You know, we have a lot of cliches. No one ever calls us because they're having a good day. No. So we're there, and, you know, the a lot of what we do is, is what we consider very routine, you know, yeah. but for the person who's calling, it's a terrible thing. Exactly. So not always the medicine that we can provide, but it's a lot of times just the bedside manner. Yeah. You know, how many people don't feel they're being heard anymore, but just, you know, listening to what, what's going on and exactly. trying to discern really what, what the problem is and, you know, getting them that level of care. And again, I think in, you know, I can only speak for Prince George, but our emergency department is phenomenal. Yeah. You know, I've worked over the years with a variety of different doctors and a variety of different nurses, but each and every one of them has been phenomenal. And what, yeah. you know, through the pandemic, what really impacted me is like all the other people that just played such an important part, like yeah. the people that kept the rooms clean. Yeah. You know, the cleaning staff, what an yeah. exceptional job they did. Yeah. You know, the administrative staff, making sure that all the right things got to the right places. Exactly. You know. I, all the I, things that we don't yeah. see and yeah. take for granted, right? Yeah, it yeah. really, when I hear someone complain about a situation that happened in the hospital, you know, it, it bothers me because I see how hard the people there work and what a great job they do. Yeah, and it's usually yeah. not, not understanding it or knowing it, right? There, there's always, there's, there's always more layers to the onion right exactly you know, that people don't always understand exactly but again you're there because you're having a bad day and you want help yeah now talking a little bit about epidemics uh pedemetics, yes uh you know the so you've been doing that now in this region for how long uh 22 years 22 years yeah and then describe a little bit like now you're a Pedomatic, and uh, I, uh, you, you work for X amount of days mm -hmm. and hours. So what does that all kind of look like? My normal shift pattern, and we have a lot of different shift patterns, but my particular one is two days and two nights. They're 12-hour shifts. Yeah. We go from six to six. Yeah. And uh, I work with generally the, uh, a regular partner. And... Uh, the partner is the, the team yeah. member in the car. Yeah, right? so then we alternate one shift you'll drive, the next shift you'll attend. And, okay. 
and that way you sort of balance everything out. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and I, again, I work with a variety of different people. Like, again, we have advanced care paramedics that I particularly work with on a regular basis. And, that, and, you, and you're parked by the hospital yes. is, the, is the building, right? Yeah, our, my particular station is the one right across from the hospital. Yeah. And personally, I chose one of the busier ambulances because the shifts go by quicker. Right. And it's just the variety of different things that, you know. So you sit there yeah. and, and, and then the phone rings. Yep, or pagers. Go. We carry pagers again. Yeah. We've gone back to that, and it's worked out well. And, yeah, so you show up, and uh, the page goes off, or the phone rings, and we have a little computer in our in our cab there that whatever the call taker has gotten for information is generally there. Uh, You're talking to 911 or to an operator of some sort? Well, or? when someone calls in, they call 911, and then right. they get sent to a dispatch center. A call taker will take the call. The call taker will send it to a dispatcher. Yeah. And then the dispatcher sends it to the available crew. Right. And, and the available crew, now, now the, the, the call will come in and saying, okay, what's the problem? Well, uh, you know, the, my husband is having a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Does that then take a special yep. person again that goes? Yeah, it'll, that actually would trigger a, a layered call. So okay. you get a advanced care paramedic team. Okay. You'd get a basic life or a primary care paramedic team. And depending on location, there would generally be a fire response as well. Okay. So uh, You see, that's another thing that I... Uh, interesting that we talk about, yeah. I guess. And, uh, you know, because a lot of times now what I see, that wasn't always that way, right? I've been here for nearly 60 years and it started out with the cars and there were ambulances and, and then obviously and I forgot now that, uh, you know, I think you said 1974 or so, or yeah. 76, uh, the ambulances came in. Yeah. And, and then more later, all the fire engines or a number of fire engines attend as well or being dispatched by the same dispatch? Yeah, uh, not by the same dispatch. So, again, there's more to it. You know, a call would come in and it generally <clears throat> would go to a, a call center. And I believe they ask, you know, do you need police, fire, ambulance? Okay. And, you know, a lot of times people will know specifically, or sometimes people will just start talking, and it's up to that call taker to discern who needs to get that call first. And uh, so let's say we get the call, and it looks like it's going to be something like maybe a cardiac arrest or something like that, where the more hands, the better. Uh, then, you know, fire will be dispatched as well. Okay. And uh, whoever gets there first starts, starts the treatment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, it becomes a team approach. And that's something, too, that has worked incredibly well. Like, I do really admire the partners that we have in town. Our yeah. RCMP are fantastic to work with. Yeah. Uh, Prince George Fire Rescue are fantastic to work with. Yeah. And, again, once we leave the city limits, we work with a lot of the volunteer fire departments. And yeah. We talked about earlier, you know, about that PTSD. You yeah. know, my, again, my heart always goes out to the volunteers. Yeah. These are people in their communities. They're just trying to make their community a little bit better. Yeah. And a lot of times they're going to their neighbor. Yeah. And there's been quite a few times where we've gone, the volunteer fire department is already working. Yeah. And it is someone that's very well known to them. Yeah. Or it could be a family member. Or stabilizing, helping. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, uh, you know, I think they're always sort of the forgotten heroes because yeah. they are the ones that are giving back to their community in such a huge way. 
you know, and I guess there's a camaraderie with being part of a volunteer fire department. I hear that all the time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of exceptional people that we get to interact with on a daily basis. Exactly, right. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, you got bad car accidents uh, happening, mm -hmm. and that can be very traumatic as well, right? Yeah, and then there's Highway Rescue. Again, another team of volunteers here in Prince George that once it's outside the city limits where Prince George Fire has their boundaries, you know, we rely on those volunteer fire departments again, the Highway Rescue, to sometimes cut open a vehicle so we can get at our patient. Yeah. You know, we, again, on an Is that, we again, volunteers that are involved? Most in of those are volunteer. I believe any, for everyone at Highway Rescue is a volunteer. Yeah. And again, we all, there's always good Samaritans that stop. And I don't... See, oh. and a lot of people don't know about that. Uh, yeah. You know, I knew that it was to a certain extent, but the extent of it, we fully don't understand. And I think yeah. that's good for you to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. You know, there's a lot of wheels in that machine that make it work. And when it works, it works great. Now, the other thing that has been of real concern to the community is that, uh, you know, the effects of drugs in particular on young people, but other mm -hmm. people, all the deaths because of that. And, and the city is not spared by that, but uh, that must be very, very hard to deal with too, right? Oh, definitely, because up until five, six years ago, we've never seen the numbers that we were seeing now. No. Uh, like I think of over the years, there, there's a drug that we administer called Narcan. Yeah. Uh, that is, you know, that will reverse the, what, the, what the opiates are doing in the system. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can't speak for my colleagues, but it was very rare to have to drop Narcan. We yeah. went to very, very few overdoses. Yeah. And then suddenly it was like a, a switch went off. Yeah. And suddenly, like there for a while there, like a few of my colleagues were having pre-drawn Narcan and keep it in their pocket because we were injecting it so much. Yeah. And it is, it's rarely does a shift go by where you don't drop Narcan once or twice. Yeah. And what we're seeing, and again, these are observations, you know, uh, is that, you know, the people that are using are generally with people that have the Narcan kits. And when somebody goes down there, by the time we get there, they've already been given bystander Narcan. Yeah. Sometimes two or three times before we get there. Yeah. So, uh, which is a lifesaver, right? It is for There's sure. There's only so much time. Yeah. <clears throat> to where Narcan will reverse? Well, what, what the opiates are doing in your system, they're stopping your respiratory system. Okay. So it's stopping your ability to breathe, you know, okay. to keep it really simple. Yeah. And so what Narcan does is that reverses that, right. but still, you know, giving them oxygen, getting them, you know, helping them breathe is really the life-saving thing. Yeah. Yeah. But... It, you know, again, uh, the streets of Prince George, again, there's another group of people that have really impressed me lately. There's a lot of people working at the needle exchanges and at a lot of the shelters that yeah. are, you know, are having to, to uh, give a lot of Narcan, yeah. assist a lot of people. Yeah. And, you know, they're, they're doing an exceptional job as well. Yeah. But the frequency of this occurring is more and more and more all the time, right? Yeah. Which is troubling. And it's not just a bigger city. Like no. I, I work on a committee that deals with stations throughout the province. And you know, the, the 
opiate situation is not a, a, a big city problem. It's a small city It's And again, I don't know the answers. Did it just become more accessible? Did it become something that people leaned on a lot more? You know, I haven't really ever researched what what started the, the sort of the abundance of it. Is yeah. it is it just you know so inexpensive and so accessible, and or is it that you know people are using this as an escape? I, I remember when I first escaping start, reality. Uh, when, when I first started with BC Ambulance, and again I I grew up with you know loving parents and a wonderful home, and yeah. you know like my my wife and my kids. You know, I have, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, a very stable, normal, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I suddenly took this job on, and I was exposed to something that I never knew existed. No. You know, I thought it was a TV show type Whole stuff. Different world. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I saw, you know, the, you know the amount like, the amount that alcohol affected people. You know, I I remember one of my very first training shifts. We did ten calls. Nine of them were alcohol related. And that was to me, like when I joined the ambulance, I thought, oh, I'm going to be there for heart attacks and broken legs, you know, exactly. car accidents, you know, that's, yeah. that, that's going to be my role in society. Yeah. And it's not so. not so at all. And, you know, there's a lot of people struggling. And I was working, and I've been very fortunate that when I started, I worked with an exceptional group of people that, you know, I learned a lot from. And I remember one saying that if you had their reality, would you want to be sober? And I, you know, thought about that and just yeah. go, you know, that it, it 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 really opened up, you know, a level of compassion, empathy for what people are going through. Exactly. Yeah. You know, like it that is their reality. Yeah. And there's not a simple solution. There's not a like, oh, if you only stop that, life would be better. Yeah. No, it, it's that, not that simple. It's not that simple. Yeah. Now, the other thing, you know, that has been from a general public perspective, and we touched on that a little bit already, uh, as to, uh, you know, I have a lumber mill and a number of other operations. One of our key problems, not only us, but many other mills or, or, or companies or government, for that matter, or the CN or the airlines, Shortage of skilled employees is a critical, critical part. Not an exception for the ambulance services or paramedics. Hopefully, <clears throat> to attract more new candidates is that changing the contract and making it more attractive hopefully will help to a certain extent. Has this been a, a big issue to the ambulance service regionally and BC? You know, again, the, I don't have any numbers to back, no, no. back this up. These are observations. But yeah, it, uh, we had a, a very unusual system as far as like even getting a full-time job. You know, you had to go to Vancouver for the longest. There was the only place you could go full-time. Uh, you know, a lot has changed for BC Ambulance in so many different ways over the last, let's say, I want to say it started even pre-COVID, but you know the way that you know the medications that we can give, the treatments that we can give, the equipment that we're working with. Uh, but there's now full-time positions in small communities yeah. that allow people to have some normality to their life. Like right. when someone was part-time, 
you never knew month to month what your schedule was going to be like. Yeah. You know, there were times when we did have an abundance of workers and there were no shifts. Yeah. So you had to end up going into maybe first aid jobs up in the oil patch or whatever. But that has changed. Like, again, because of shortage, there are, you know, it's kind of a standing joke. If you want to work, there's a position for you somewhere. Yeah. You know, there's an open ambulance somewhere that you'll be able to work. Yeah. So that has, uh, that's changed. Right. And I, but I think, you know, having full-time positions in a, not just Prince George, but in these other communities has just made it so people can think of it as a career. And I think just even from the scope of what they're allowing us to do, what medications they're adding, the treatments that we can offer, uh, it's hard not to feel good about being a paramedic now. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other thing, Jim, is being, uh, and I, I was involved in this quite a number of years ago, is that Northern BC is so huge, and especially for people watching this from Europe uh, in particular, you know, here we're sitting in Prince George, British Columbia, you know, and yeah. then saying Vancouver is 800 kilometers south of us, mm-hmm. and then 800 kilometers north of us is the Yukon border. Mm-hmm. That's the size of mm-hmm. British Columbia. And, and the same from east to west. We are in the center, so it's huge. Yeah. And by size, most of the population is close to the border with the United States mm-hmm. or on the island, in particular the southern part of the island. <clears throat> what I found here, and I don't know if they are doing, you, you refer to helicopters, but I always thought that uh, you know we should, uh, you know, have more helicopter services that take us out to those places that are hard to get to uh, mm-hmm. by car. And you were referring that the ambulance service has well, helicopter well again, again, service here yeah, as well. We've added a helicopter. There's always been one in Kamloops, my understanding. There's one in Prince Rupert. We have one now in Prince George, and it is a dedicated medical helicopter. Okay. Set up for stretchers, set up with the proper equipment, and dedicated to respond to ambulance calls. Oh, and I didn't know. Is yeah. it at the airport then? It's uh, at the airport, yeah. It's painted like an ambulance. It's. Uh, well, I haven't even seen that. Yeah. Where is it parked? It's uh, over on the anti air side hangar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Is it in the hangar then? It's in the hangar until. Because they I'm there, I go back and forth and back and forth all the time to yeah. the airport. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, if you'd like a tour one day, I'll, I like uh, I like that. Yeah, I would be more than happy to uh, to bring I you up there. I want to do that and then yeah. uh, take a picture of it and then post it as well. Yeah. Because uh, you know that. So so that is always on call. Yes, and manned with uh, with again either critical care or basic life support paramedics or oh, pra- primary that, care paramedics. That is great. Yeah. Again, you know, weather is always going to be an issue. Flying helicopters in Regardless. our area, but. Uh, and again, we have the dedicated plane. We actually have two planes dedicated to Prince George. Uh, you know, again, being a provincial service, you talk about the remoteness. We have stations in the Fort Nelsons, the Atlans, the Hudson exactly. Hopes, uh, you know, the Dees Lakes. and Telegraph Creek yeah. or wherever, uh, Telqua yeah. or, uh, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. all over the place, right? So again, you know, if there is a response that's needed, yeah. But, and we partner again with search and rescue teams, with the Canadian Forces search and rescue teams. Like, we'll, we'll get to you. So, what I'm hearing from you, what I'm seeing, 
And I've known there have been some struggles in terms of, uh, you know, getting through the contract negotiations. Those are now behind us. That all looks well for what I've always felt, what I've seen and how we have been exposed to it. Obviously, I'm running lumber mills and doing all the kind of things like that and have had exposure to, uh, you know, ambulance service when required or when I was close to areas where they were required or police or the mm -hmm. fire department and all of those uh, have, you know, be very fortunate as a province and, uh, you know, how well those services work here. Yeah, again, there's always improvements that can always yeah. be made. It's always yeah. evolving, but yeah, I think the citizens of BC should be very proud of the ambulance service and yeah. you know, and I'm very proud of the work that you know my colleagues, you know, do day in day out and every night and yeah. So, you've been doing this now for 22 years, yeah. you know, and and doing this for a lot longer from here on in or what is your uh, no I, yeah, I still future? have a few more years before retirement is uh, is uh, gonna happen but I still I still enjoy going to work I work like I said I've got a great partner right now his name yeah. is Roger Boer another Dutch guy yeah and, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah <laughs> yeah and uh, you know I work with some great uh, you know advanced care paramedics you know Jesse and Stefan you know they're there and yeah. you know the people I work around around me are excellent guys and, and ladies, and uh, you know, we we try to you know be positive yeah. about what's going on, and we try to help. You know, again, it, it, our, our job our job can be sometimes just be nice to people. Yeah, you know, just be kind. Like I said, yeah. sometimes just listening is all. They but need. you can be anything when required. You have all the tools yes. to deal with any any set of circumstances, and yeah. you have the people to you know to do the best that is possible available yeah if things happen that's right yeah other thing that i want to talk about with you a little bit the relay of life the, you were quite involved in that well i've always you know from actually an early age you know or right out of you know high school i've always been about volunteering yeah and the Re relay for life was very near and dear to my heart uh and it sort of stemmed out of my, my dad passing away. My dad passed away from cancer. And uh, there was, and he was down in the lower mainland. We were visiting a, a, a cancer clinic and we were met by a guy at the door and he was dressed like a doorman. You know, he had yeah. the, the big thing on and yeah. he, you know, again, we were in a, we did not expect it to be a positive outcome. And, you know, we were all pretty sad. You know, we were, you know, we were there hoping for some kind of miracle. Yeah. And uh, we had this guy greet us at the door and he had this big smile on his face and he was super friendly. And at the time I was really annoyed by him because I'm going, you know, this is sad. This is not happy times. Like, you know, yeah. you, you jerk being so happy. Yeah. And uh, after my dad did pass away and I had some time, you know, actually I kept thinking about that guy. And he actually had an impact. Like he was making it positive yeah, yeah. in a bad situation. Yeah. So. I felt a little motivated that I wanted to help. So I actually went by our local cancer society office. And at the time, Steve Horton was the manager. And I says, hey, I w I'd like to do something. I don't know what you need, but I'd like to do something. And he says, well, you know, we always need help with fundraising. And he says, you know, we'd, you know let's brainstorm. Yeah. And, you know, Steve's a really dynamic guy. Uh, you might know in town here, Dave Horton. It's Dave Horton's dad, Steve yeah, yeah. Horton. And... Uh, 
we, we had talked at one time, I was an avid cyclist at the time, that we were going to do this bike ride around Prince George. Yeah. But we approached the RCMP and they said, logistically, our roads aren't set up. We can shut down roads and make that happen. So we had heard that Coquitlam did a 12-hour relay. Yeah. And being competitive people, we said, well, we have to one-up them. Let's do 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. In that first year, we had a small team of volunteers. That's how it all started. Yeah. Yeah. And we had a small team of volunteers, and uh, we had a lot of support from the Boy Scouts, or sorry, the Scouts, yeah. and, uh, and their leaders. And, you know, they were our, sort of our main volunteers those, those first few years. They did security, they did cleanup, they did yeah. everything for us. And uh, I think we had 90 people sign up, and I think there were six teams with a total wow. of 90 people. Wow. And that first year, you know, uh, there was a lot of things that impacted me about the first year. The, you know, the first midnight vigil, we still had it at midnight. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really moving. It gave people a chance to grieve that had lost somebody, and it gave yeah. a chance for people to celebrate the people that had beat cancer. Exactly. But we were sitting there up on a hill at about 2 in the morning, and there were six people walking around the track. And it just really impacted me that it was something special. Yeah. And, uh, you know, over the years, you know, more people got excited by it, more people heard about yeah. it. And I think it was like year five, it became this, this, this city, this, this city inside itself, this, this big monster of an event. And it was, we kind of joked that they were spending more on T-shirts than we even made that first year. Yeah, and uh, it just and I took sort of more of a backseat role and just kind of came went to the event and whatever it was cleanup or whatever just kind of helped out but always trying to try to stay connected to it. Yeah, and it was just incredible, you know, what this event had become and it became yeah. a staple of Prince George. Yeah. So uh, the recent news about it uh, being shut down was. Uh, why, was, why, why was it shut down? I, I, you know, all I've read is, all I know is from what I've read in, in the newspaper stories, it was a corporate decision that they, uh, they cut, shut down quite a few of them. And I think administratively it was too tough to do. And uh, I think what I, I talk about, like not being able to get skilled workers or workers yeah. in general, uh, getting people to volunteer. Like it's a big, a big event that needs a lot of people to make it run successfully. And yeah. I think just getting people to volunteer, whether it's still a, a after effect of COVID or it's just, it's a different mindset that, that we're in right now. But even events we do with BC Amos, we do an annual food drive called yeah. the Red and White Hunger Fight, yeah, which has become St. Vincent de Paul's, from what I understand, their biggest food drive. They depend yeah. on us. Yeah, we, This is the first year we weren't able to do it because we could not get enough volunteers to actually man the ambulances and collect the groceries. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah, because could it not be that saying likely it's the after effect of COVID uh, that people are not quite back on the circuit that they should be and, and uh, you know, and that, uh, you know, maybe, uh, uh, there has to be a pause so that it still can con continue at some well, point? you know, volunteerism, and, and I know you do a lot in our community and you're yeah. involved in a lot of different events. When you're at your events, you probably see the same people event to event to event. It seems like it's that real 80-20 rule has even gotten more of a 90-10 rule. Yeah. 90% of the work is being done by 10% instead of that old 80-20. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's the same people that keep stepping up and, yeah. And, yeah. and doing the work. And, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about like, you know, how, like with my colleagues, like, because <coughs> I don't think they understand the benefits. Like when you volunteer at something like a food drive, like we, like you mentioned earlier, we go to events where people are generally at their worst or they're having that really bad day. When you're at a volunteer event, you get people that are patting you on the back and shaking your hand and thanking you for what you do. Yeah. It's a win-win. Like not only exactly. are you collecting food and helping a food bank, yeah. you know, save on loves us because they see a big bump in sales, you know, but from a morale standpoint and from a, you know, anytime I've done any kind of feel good, right? Yeah. Anytime I've done anything extracurricular yeah. in the community, you generally can't help but leave feeling a lot better about yeah. your community, about yeah. yourself, about, you know, about people that you work with. I find it sometimes, uh, Jim, for me at least, is part of the culture. Mm -hmm. That's what we did when I was in Holland, you know, mm -hmm. so I'm not saying anything positive, negative but about it, but for me, it's not something that I do because I have an agenda, but I feel that being part of the community means, you know, giving back wherever you can. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean it has to be a, a lot other than maybe just time brings the community together and uh, for everybody. And that's mm -hmm. really the whole fabric of what makes a community. And every so often we see that that happens here as well. Uh, you know, I'm particularly thinking back on, I think it was 2018, 19, when the big fires were there and, and all the people from around here came and were all accommodated in Prince George and Prince George took on a leadership yeah. role and so did the people and that was exemplary in my opinion and, uh, yeah. and, and showed what can be done and, uh, you know, well, and it becomes a way of life, uh, you know, saying that's part of our culture. Yeah. Well, I, re I remember something that my dad said when there was, when my dad was in the hospital, we were sitting there and there were people coming to visit and it was people from his church yeah. that, that he knew, but let's say weren't close friends or anything like that. And these people kept coming by and go, dad, like, you know, I didn't know you, that you knew him well. And he said something to me, he says, well, when things are tough, people step up. Yeah. Like he said, you're right. These aren't people that I would talk to on a daily basis, but yeah. they know that I'm in the hospital now, and they yeah. come and visit. Yeah. And that 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 simple sentence really impacted me. Yeah. No question. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of what shows, uh, you know, that that the importance of that of being part of the culture, of yeah. uh, you know, the stepping up when the opportunity presents itself, and that at the end of the day makes the community. Yeah, you know, without a doubt. And I know that you've done, because again, that's I think when I first met you is actually I, I went up to you just to yeah. say how much I admired the work that you were doing and, yeah. you know, to say thank you as a community member. Yeah. Because I had saw your name, you know, doing, working with this and you'd work with this group and that group. Yeah. You know, and I know the list goes on and on. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just really impressed because yeah. as a business person, you could literally sit in your executive office and put yeah. your feet up and... no. But you didn't, and no. I was very impressed by that. Yeah, it's 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 the the background. It's that's the culture. You yeah, know? so so important for yeah. the community. Yeah. You know, I, again, I, I re, I've mentioned my dad a few times, but you know, <clears throat> again, I we had a lot of seniors in our church, and yeah. there was a few times, and again, at the time that I was at that age, I hated it. But my dad would drag me out on a Saturday, yeah, 
he would get that person out of the house and he would like fix a fence like yeah. you know just yeah just because yeah he knew they couldn't do it and he no. had those skills so yeah you know again those kind of things really impacted me yeah yeah. Now, the other thing that I want to talk to you about a little bit is the IRS supplies. What does that stand well, for? Well, it's, it's IRL supplies. <laughs> oh, sorry, and, I, IRL. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, it's actually uh, my father-in-law's, it was my father-in-law's business. It's now my brother-in-law's business. It's Industrial Reproductions Limited, which is actually very close to Brink Forest Products. Yeah. And... Uh, that's actually what got me to Prince George is I was down in Vancouver. That's where I had met my, my wife and her dad owned IRL supplies. And, uh, it's on the other side of the bridge. Yeah. 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 And it's an industrial supplier to the forest industry and the mining industry. It's and a big company. It's become, you know, for being a standalone Prince George business, which yeah. now has a location in Saskatchewan as it's well. It's been around for a long time. Yeah, and, uh, 52, and, I think, was when it was originally started by a few of the people from IFS. Yeah. Yeah, Harry Gerns, I think, was one of yeah. the people involved. Industrial Forest Service. Yeah. Yeah, it's now uh, Rob Schutz is the uh, CEO. Yeah. yeah, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's, again, a place that's all about quality and about yeah. customer service. And, yeah. you know, they do a good job and have got a lot of long-time people. I was there for 30 years before I left to yeah. just do ambulance full time. I kind of combined the two for quite a while. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well that's, I was with IRL for a long time there. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I developed a lot of friendships with a lot of customers, a yeah. lot of people in the industry. And yeah, it's, inter it's interesting at the time we were, again, you really watch the economy as things, especially in the forest industry were yeah. up and down. Yeah. So did the business. Yeah, and now being in a business that you know is seems to be unaffected by the economy, people yeah. get sick no matter what's happening with the price of lumber. Yeah, um, you know, oh, it's I've just always, like a roller coaster, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I've always tried to stay busy. Like I also do a lot of you know freelance photography. I've been with the CN Center for close to twenty five years as their event photographer. Yeah, and you that's know, another thing I was going to ask you about yeah. uh, being a photographer. Yeah, has been very much part of your life too. It's that was always the pat. That was the the hobby that I loved. The passion, you know, like I loved everything about cameras. I loved yeah. the hardware, the shooting the images, yeah. looking at other people's pictures. Like yeah. it was, you know, photography is is sort of the happy place for me. And when I had the opportunity, I first actually connected with the Cougars when the French George Cougars first came to town. Yeah. I kind of was a, a bit of a pain to them. I kept phoning up, saying, "Hey, come on, let me take pictures. Let me take pictures." Yeah. Eventually, they finally relented and said, "Okay, you get two rolls of film, this Go back in film. Yeah. You know, you know, try to impress us." Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was still in their Coliseum days before they moved over to at the time the multiplex yeah. or the CN Center. And uh, I, I lucked out. You know, I got a bunch of images that they really liked right off the bat. So they yeah, said, yeah. "Hey, do you want to work with us?" Yeah, yeah. And at the time, it was great. You know, got to sh you know get into all the hockey games and shoot yeah. hockey and. You know, uh, my kids were small. They got to meet the players, and yeah, you know, yeah. the pl so, you know, it, it was it was a great experience. And then that led to you know shooting the concerts and the other shows. And yeah. I've worked with Glenn Mickelson for well, I think it's close to twenty two, twenty three years with him as well. And yeah, and uh, you know, I've got to see some incredible entertainment up close and personal. And uh, you know, 
been backstage for a couple of the meet and greets and got to meet a few of the people and it makes your life so interesting right because you you got your career you had uh, your uh, engagement with uh, IW uh, IRL obviously yeah. uh, you know for many many years and then uh, uh, still the career as a paramedic yeah you know? uh, just got to keep it interesting right yeah <laughs> so the other thing that I did is that uh, so, and we talked about it a little bit, is uh, I wrote this book, now which is somewhat amazing because uh, I'm not naturally a writer or I, I was not overly academically successful. I uh, uh, failed grade three and then I failed grade seven three times and then mm -hmm. I got a job as, on, at 14 and uh, as a furniture maker. And then when I came to Canada, I wanted to always come to Canada and then the other part that I wanted to do is build my own lumber mill. Mm -hmm. And then the other reason that I came here is to prove that I can do it mm -hmm. and that I have what it takes. And uh, I left Amsterdam with $150. And when I came off the bus here, I had $25.47. Yeah. But what I did have is attitude, passion, and work ethic, which means success. And, uh, you know, it's always been very much part of it. I'm writing another book that will kind of fit in what you are talking about. It is Finding Your Passion, Living the Dream. And that's about people, so many people are doing things, they said, I don't like what I'm doing and I hate my job because that will affect everything around them. And I say change. And so that book is coming out in uh, this July. Oh, looking forward I'll get to you it. a copy of it. Oh, I appreciate but that. In the meantime, I, this one here is <clears throat> is also against all odds. It took me eighty years to live it, twenty mm. years to think about it, two years to write it. And it's not about hurrah hurrah how successful John is, but it's more about in spite of it all. You know, the PTSD, inner child, uh, fear of losing your parent, the only one that you had during the war mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, was with me for a long time until I got counseling for it in my 50s, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, you know, and then, uh, uh, you know, and then obviously restarting my career. And then the other part is the ADHD unlocked. It was not until I was 57 that I walked into a bookstore here and I looked at this one book I don't know why I looked at it. It was uh, the title of the book was "Driven to Distraction," okay, and it was about ADHD. And I said, "Oh my God, that's me!" And I took the book and I wrote in it in Dutch. Now I finally know who I am. And and then it took me another five years before I talked to my doctor about it. Was was my personal friend. You know, and one day I came into his office, it was five years later, I was already in my early 60s. And he said, hey, John, why are you here? I said, I think I got ADHD. And, and then we kind of explored it, and yes, I did. And then it took me another number of years until I thought, I'm going to write a book about that. And that's what this one is, quite successful. Good. So I'm going to sign those for you. Oh, thank you. And then the other one is... Uh, Finding your passion, living the dream, is extremely important to a lot of people, I believe, and uh, that will come out in July. 
And I'll get you a copy of that as well. No, I appreciate that. I'm looking forward to it. And the one with ADHD, actually, uh, one of my best friends is Dr. Tracy Lotz. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yep. But a very well-known medical doctor and, uh, and emergency surgeon. ADHD. You know, so in, in this book on ADHD, it... <clears throat> We interview about 12 different people that have uh, uh, blessed by it. I call it, it's not a liability. I mm -hmm. believe it's a superpower. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have done what I did unless I have ADHD. Mm -hmm. Highly misunderstood in my opinion, although the stigma is starting to disappear from it. I hope at least in a small way I'm helping that process. Yeah. And, and I call it a superpower. And there is not a day that goes by, Jim, that I don't hear from somebody that says, I got it too. And or my kids or this or that. I interviewed, I think, uh, earlier this week, uh, a fellow that both him and his wife have it. And, uh, you know, ADHD. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so, uh, so what I say is this particular book, especially for anybody, because it is virtually the frequency of occurrence much higher than people initially thought it would be, and that it is virtually unavoidable that you will find in your circle, your friends, your family, or you will encounter ADHD. And to understand it is, makes it more easily understood by some people are a little bit different in being yeah. ADHD people, and that's why I wrote it. You know. Oh, excellent, thank you. But there are people that are not only ADHD, but also the ones that are affected by trauma, or by, uh, you know, First Nations comes to mind, and are slow learners, you know, and uh, you know that uh, you know can kind of look at this, and then it also deals with the issue of training. Everybody's not suited to sit four years, five years in a cl classroom and take in all the stuff that you're feeding them, mm -hmm. but more focusing on the core issues. Yeah. Which addresses the learning process that I believe needs an overhaul. Well, you, you touch on something, like I've got four kids and each one is their own unique person. Exactly. Yeah, and it's the exact same way, is that everybody sort of does have their own you know, everyone's going to address something a little bit different. Exactly. You know, we, we talked briefly about, you know, mental health issues, right? Yeah. Everybody thinks about a situation a little differently. Like when you have the flu, there's commonalities. Yeah. You know, you're going to, you got the fever, you're going to be coughing, you know, there's yeah. a commonality. But with mental health issues or anything like that, everyone is going to process it, deal with it slightly differently. And, and, and we get into, we're recognizing it more as a reality. It's not anymore something that we really don't want to talk about. It is more open out there, same with ADHD, and that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, and, and, and to say, okay, then how do we incorporate that into our lives, uh, you know, and how do we deal with it more effectively by understanding it? And, uh, yeah. and I, I, in my little way, at least, uh, hope to uh, contribute to that as well. Excellent. Jim. It was a pleasure. Yeah, it was thank you much. for your service. Well, thank you. Yeah, and, and if there is an opportunity at some point, then give me a call and then I want to 
see the helicopter and yeah. and then maybe also see you in uniform then okay and uh, then take some pictures and then uh, you know at least gives you an opportunity to give me a look the same i would like to see the facility across from the hospital yeah so i'd be to, honored to actually give you a tour through that i yeah. would like that yeah and you know, i'll get one of my bosses to join us and, yeah and uh, i would like that as well yeah you know and then uh, kind of go from there excellent again thanks Jeff. thank you for the time appreciate yeah, it thank you